Hello and welcome back to Sharing Things. I'm Hannah, a fourth year Edinburgh University student and your new host for season six. But before we jump into a new round of fascinating and heartwarming conversations, this episode offers the chance to pause and reflect on the vast array of wisdom and insight shared by our previous guests. Pulling from a variety of episodes over the last five seasons, we focus on the theme, making spaces, liberally interpreted, of course. I hope you enjoy and maybe even stumble across the words you've been needing to hear. You touched on kind of the feeling of being alive and stuff. What do you think specifically makes you feel alive? I'm sort of a bit embarrassed to say this, but it is my faith. So there's this sense of being connected to something bigger. Mm -hmm. And that can be triggered when I look at the mountains, like on the train ride here. And there was this full moon and there's just that awe. Yeah of whether you call it nature or I call it God, that just bigger thing. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, it's in the still silent moments because I meditate or pray in the morning and it's those moments. Otherwise, I would rush through life. You know, you talked Mm. about being busy, Ellen. I would just go from one exciting, brilliant experience or awful, stressful moment to the Mm. next without ever really getting that feeling of stopping. Processing it and reflecting. Being alive and being in awe, basically being in awe of the miracle of Mm-hmm. wonderful, awful, mixed up, beyond our comprehension life. Yeah. Because <laughs> we that's... can't box it and explain it. No. That is so interesting because that answer is so similar to my answer in a very different way because mm-hmm. as someone who's not religious, as soon as you said what makes you feel alive, I was thinking about community and thinking yes. about people and it is that mm-hmm. overarching sense of belonging and there being something there that you have and yeah. whether that's from god whether that's from people whether that's from whatever else you believe uh-huh. for in. some people it's a, a belief system of politics yes or yeah. campaigning for the environment but yeah community, yeah, community and people you know and I, very basic to yeah us. and i we think about you know the best times i have and it's times where I'm with a group of people and, you know, I think back to, it was Disability History Month in November. Sadly, I only got 10 days of it before I was... <laughs> nearly died. Nearly died. Uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, we had, <laughs> um, and we had a lovely mixer at the beginning of that month and it was supposed to go on from 5 until 7pm and I got home at about half 10, <laughs> having drunk a bit and eaten a meal and wasn't expecting to have such a... wonderful productive evening with these people that either I knew and were friends with or I'd never met before or I kind of only half knew you know speaking about these big issues and Mm. it felt like a productive rant of like here's all of the things that I think are bad that you know ableism and the problems that we have with the institutions that we're in but here's what we can do about it and we haven't done any of that yet but we will. And, and you know you're not alone. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it's that real contact. I'm, I'm a counsellor and a coach, and we talk about that true contact. Yeah. And you're being yourself and talking about what matters rather than just... Yeah. It's so lovely yeah. to know that people have the same problems as you. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we'd like the problems not to exist. Sure. But having that connection is just so important. And I think that there are pockets of the university community that I just feel so attached to that have made my time in Edinburgh what it is you know the classes are great and getting a degree is lovely I would love to graduate that would be nice <laughs> but um, no, it's the connections with people yeah I was thinking what do I remember from my year in Edinburgh and it was the people that came to mind first I didn't quite realize that I didn't love Aberdeen and I didn't get that sense of community there I shout out to my friends in Aberdeen I do still love you uh, but I think there's something about leaving your home community mm-hmm. 
and finding your own one where yes. you're yourself. You're, you're not the daughter of your parents and you can reinvent yourself. Yeah, you're a chosen family. Chosen yeah. family, yeah. I love that. And then I think when we return to our hometown, we see it with different eyes yeah. and appreciate it. But we need mm-hmm. to leave it. Yeah, need to spread well, metaphorical wings. Most, yeah, yeah, to come back. What you said about belonging, I think we all have a deep need to belong mm-hmm. and to connect. And I run menopause cafes. Yeah. And again, it's different because it's not really a disability, but it can feel like that. And the things that people say after it are, now I know I'm not alone. Yeah. So even though the challenges haven't gone. No, it's just, uh, okay, it's it's normalising the things yeah. that you struggle with. And once they become normalised, they, they seem smaller and they seem more manageable. That's it. And there's hope. Hope is what we need. Yeah. And when I think about this pendant, because it, it was brought about by the 10th Guru when the Khalsa was formed and... The castle was made to protect those who are oppressed. And if you were to see a Sikh with a turban and a beard, you were you know, meant to feel safe because that was someone that could protect you, someone that was sort of on your side. And I feel like something that I think, you know, people who I would never understand saying hello to me in Punjabi, who, who maybe would not know to do that if I didn't have my hair or I didn't look the way I look, it's sort of, it kind of warms my heart a little bit. And it's nice, especially in a place in Edinburgh where there's not too many of us. You see one and you do the sing nod there's a thing <laughs> I don't know, I'm rambling on here I'm sorry but <laughs> no. absolutely set me off there's a there's a video that me and my older brother watched and it was it's called the secret sing nod and what it is this is almost like this little code that Sikh people have with each other if you see a guy with a turban or a, or a Sikh woman you can usually tell if they wear the, the bangle you sort of give a little nod and you keep walking and I'll be walking with my friends and they'll be like, do you know that person? I'm like, spiritually, <laughs> spiritually, I know that person. In here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In here. <laughs> I, know, I know what you've been through. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's nice to be part of a community, even if it's sort of spread all around the world and quite far from where the community actually is sort of in Punjab. But yeah, I'm really proud to be Sikh. So yeah. that's kind of why I brought my necklace in today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I'm only 19, I, I do feel like I've found a lot about myself because of the way I look and you say you have to go through certain things to grow as a person I feel like you experience certain things on the playground or at school or down the street or whatever and that either you either run from it so a lot of boys Sikh boys and girls have cut their hair and things like this because they want to mask that identity and they don't feel comfortable and that's completely understandable for me I kind of walked into it grabbed it with two hands and was like this is who I am mm-hmm. this is what I'm going to be like and this is the person I'm going to be and I felt it's really important finding your identity do you ever feel that you weren't in Edinburgh not because the medical school but just because there are so few Sikhs here and you would stand out because you are visibly Sikh do you ever feel oh, I wish I was somebody where it was easier to be a Sikh um, a few times when I go back home I realise and I see and my, my best friend from back home is Sikh and we have so much in common because we've had such a similar upbringing. It's, it's like, you know instantly if you see a Sikh person that you have 60, 70%. You don't have to start from ABC. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you already there's, there's so yeah. much that you understand about each other. And even that's the same with even sort of people from South Asian backgrounds and especially yeah. Indian backgrounds. Like you share so much of an upbringing because it's culturally there's so many influences in how you're brought up and Absolutely. the way the way you are when you're young. But I think... Me, as I said before, I've always been kind of a free spirit. I don't really, not really fast about things like no. that anymore. That's good. I think it's not till you have to take ownership of your faith. So you leave home yeah. or you decide, well, 
what am I going to do with this faith? Not the faith that is within you and that is your connection to God, but the faith that's visible, the faith that stands you out. But you decide then, this is what's important to me, this isn't that important to me. Um, I think for me, the UK in some ways, despite all the things that people go through, is a really easy place to live out your faith as well, despite the discrimination some people may face, describe the name calling. Because I think after a while, people realise that actually you stand for something. You stand for a belief or you stand for something principled that they see it's not easy. You know, it's much easier to just blend in. But you can blend in as well as have your faith. I think mm. this sense that it's got to be either or is actually a huge misnomer. It's interesting because the authors of the book, I mean, they're fantastic. There's 52 amazing self-identifying women in the book who have kind of been like, hey, man, I'm a dangerous woman. Like, it's all about me. Or like, this woman in history who's been completely ignored deserves to be given credit as dangerous. So that the idea of danger stems from a couple of lowbrow articles put out by the Daily Mail in, in around 2016 referring to first Shami Chakrabarti former head of Liberty, and then Nicola Sturgeon as the most dangerous woman in Britain, like inverted commas, mm. <laughs> or like the most dangerous wee woman in politics. I don't know, they throw the term around quite a bit about these quite powerful women, women with like great status and ability to do stuff and challenge people and, and like with the power to make a difference are being brandished as dangerous, as if like they're a threat in some way. So uh, I guess my answer to that would be to be dangerous, you should always be a threat. You should always be challenging an 18th century white male diplomat, I think, to be dangerous. You should always be doing something that wouldn't have been acceptable 100 years ago. I feel that in India, the very existence of being a woman and doing what you think is right in your mind is being a dangerous woman. Because, of course, there are still a lot of traditional uh, roles that are imposed on women. And I feel that there is less space for self-determination. So I do feel that the very existence of doing what you think that you want to do for yourself is being dangerous because in that way you challenge so many roles that are put on you or so many institutions that try to bring you down. And I feel that it's very different in the context of the East and, and, the, and the West. But I feel that it's so much more challenging uh, to be a woman there. But I feel that it's so much more also inspiring for me to see how women every day fight against a lot of issues and still are able to do so much. Yeah, I love the term dangerous women. Got to reclaim it. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Do you mostly write in English then? Yes, yes. Because we are educated in English since a very young age. So yeah. I do write in English mostly. I mean, our conversational language is also Hindi. My first language is Hindi. But I feel that we lose a lot of it because we're educated in English. Now that I, I look back, I want to reclaim my language and read literature in Hindi and start to write more in Hindi because a lot of the language is lost because you don't use it enough or English is more of an aspirational language. It's easy to find jobs. It's Everything to do with it is better with English because um colonization exactly <laughs> <laughs> big boss came in and said you guys yeah. must speak like this now it's so uh, funny because 
of although we write in english i use a lot of hindi words in the middle because it makes it feel more authentic and uh, more connected for people who would read it it's hard sometimes to capture an experience in english because it would be so typically indian for me that yeah. maybe the language cannot capture it well enough as the language there could but that is one of the struggles that all people who were colonized at some point face because they all have this other language that has been imposed for years and then mm-hmm. they're probably like stuck in the middle like oh i'm good at this but i should be good at this and now i don't know where to go yeah all my family are from iran mm. i mean i was born and grew up in london i've been in the uk my whole life but uh, i kind of i see what you mean of that like it's really upsetting to me that i don't speak farsi i i go to iran and can't communicate with people and like i love it there i love my culture i mean it has its faults of course but the idea that that kind of english englishness prevails yeah. i don't know i've been in a leadership position for the last couple of years and technology um fundamentally is quite male dominated so you're definitely in the minority if you're a woman you're definitely in the minority if you're non-white and also if you're young there's not a lot of young people and by young i mean below the age of 40 people in leadership positions within either technology or banking right so it's hard to find role models mm-hmm. i would say and that is a bit of a challenge because it's not something that affects you directly or mm-hmm. it doesn't affect you day to day but when you think about it it does uh, seem to become this uh, mental hurdle where you think oh i'll never get that job or i'll never get to that position because you don't ever see yourself reflected uh, in like plus 15 years time so um i would say that that is a bit of an issue the flip side is that i i see a growth in engagement of diversity across not just gender diversity but just across the board um diversity in tech because a lot has been done in terms of policies and you know putting a lot of things into practice to encourage more and more people um from different backgrounds to get into it but it's a work in progress and when i talk of role models it's it's something that if you set in motion now you'll see the results in like two decades time mm-hmm. so because those are the the women or or those are the people from other ethnicities who will make it to leadership positions and as we know in banking one of the one of the reasons one of the contributing factors to the financial crash of 2007 was the fact that there was no di- diversity across the board there was no difference of opinion and there was nobody saying no we shouldn't do this and here's why and also there's now research to show that businesses that are more diverse are actually more profitable so i think I would say that a lot is being done but there's there's a way to go there still and that would be probably um one of the challenges that I've faced. So I had this opportunity to go to Antarctica with 80 other women who were uh, leaders in their fields from across the world and we were selected I was one of the women from Scotland that went there was another lady from Scotland too and we were there together chosen because of our positions of influence or or leadership in whatever way that was so early career right the way through to people who were established in their careers as well um people who were 
interested and focused on sustainability in whatever shape or form that may be. And then um, we were come and also the, the gender aspect as well about being female. That was part of it, too. And so we came together. And what that gave me, apart from, you know, this fantastic experience of Antarctica and the people that I met along the way. But what it's left me with is this network of women that I would never have met otherwise who are doing fantastic work across the world and in, in different fields and different um as you know, interdisciplinary work suddenly becomes a lot more possible i can physically get in, in contact with them to establish research to to just say i'm feeling challenged by this how would you react what would you do so those range of conversations that you can have but what's important about that is not just that that influences me is that i can then look at students that I'm working with I can recognise in others that perhaps they need to be connected to this as well so the network isn't just for me to feel connected to others, it's actually about what can I do then when I'm in this position to support others so whether it's you know understanding what it's like to juggle children and study and part time study and work or whatever experiences I've had if I can help in my leadership position that I have to support others and to connect them into this I think that's something I can do to try and mitigate for some of those challenges I think that I've faced, personally I've faced. I think I was sort of drawn into it just because, yeah, like I'd known about it, but I'd never really thought there was ever opportunity to play it just because I'm from Central Belt, which isn't really a place where it's played very often. And then I actually didn't have a clue that there was a uni team at all until my third year. And then I found out and I was like, you know what, just just go and do it. And finally, yeah, you've got to try things and I think I was um, if anything a bit impressed with myself that I did try it and then did sort of throw myself in and I think it helps that the people that I play with it's very much like a bit of a family which I think I'd struggled to find in Edinburgh until then people talk about imposter syndrome I think I learned about that phrase and I was like oh that's what it is I can definitely relate to the imposter syndrome and and throwing yourself into something that uh, you have always wanted to do maybe or that you've been too scared to do and also finding a community within that thing that you were scared to do, but then you finally did. So the, the Shinty stick is like, like one object that you have kind of an emotional attachment to. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the thing. That's why I, cause I looked around and I was like, what do I actually have that I think, you know, I'd care about enough to, to lose. I think they're just very beautiful objects as well. Like the grip here, it was given to me by one of my friends on the team who was about to go in year abroad. And I think it was really nice because I'd, I'd sort of said for ages, I was like, my favourite colour is light blue. And then she found this, she found this light blue grip and she gave it to me just before she went. I think that meant a lot. And also because, yeah, like it sort of represents pushing myself on to do something. I still don't think I'm a very good, good player. And I think that's definitely something I need to work on. And especially, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that even now, yeah, I don't see myself as a very sporty person. On paper, I probably qualify as a sporty person, whereas just now I'm like, I like the outdoors and maybe it's just that I like to run about a field, kind of like a Labrador. And maybe that's what it is. But yeah, I still don't really consider myself that way. And I guess sort of branching off from that, I think that makes me more keen on making stuff like that more accessible to people because I think that puts a lot of people off. It's like, well, I don't belong there. Like I don't fit to like, preconceptions of what a person on a sports team should be. And yeah, I guess before, yeah, see, if you'd asked me, say, in second year of uni, I'd be like, no, of course I'm not going to be in a in a sports team I like to the president of one it's you're doing great maybe people find I like maybe maybe people can find an inspiration from that the fact that you are not you don't categorize yourself as a sporty person but like you still are the president and high up in a sports society so people can be like oh like yeah making like sport is accessible 
Yeah, I guess that's kind of like, you know, all this stuff about representation and like even in, say, like politics or the media and just having different people from different backgrounds and different say, like labels attached to them. It just means that you can see yourself there and you're like, oh, cool, like I could I could go and do that if I wanted like be a politician or an actress or whatever. Yeah, representation is is so important. I feel like representation has obviously this is not the same thing at all or it has to do with representation but in general um I feel like for the past like three years representation has been key to getting me through my whole like sexuality identity crisis like I feel like I it's so important to see people that you can identify with to realize that you can be you you are valid and that Mm. your experiences are also valid I feel like yeah it's just so important to to see people who look like you who who have gone through the same things as you and to see them happy and um, and do you do that on purpose or is it just like a thing that happens to go that way that you always have somebody so like representing yourself there do you go out to look for that yeah definitely but also I think at this point, it kind of falls into my lap automatically as well, mm-hmm. because I'm so, because like, you know how the algorithms give you what you want, tailor whatever they recommend to you, to to what you've watched before, or to what you've seen before, who you follow, and whatever. So I feel like my Instagram explore, my Netflix page, my, um, like all of these, all of these, um, like social media platforms that re- recommend things to you, they mm-hmm. always end just giving me basically what I want, which is, mm-hmm. which is nice. In terms of diversity in academia and education, why is that so important to both of you? I would say it's important just because of the fact that different people bring different ideas. I mean, the whole point of academia is it's supposed to be a part of civilization where people think. <laughs> That's what universities were designed to do, uh, to, to challenge existing paradigms, to advance the, the state of society, uh, our ability to express ourselves. And, and universities should see themselves as places where that should happen. So it's diversity of people and ideas. In fact, diversity in all realms of sort of human existence is what universities should be trying to encourage. That, that's really their mission. I don't think they should ever lose sight of that. I think it's more difficult these days because um, universities tend to become more commercially focused. They're run a little bit like businesses. I think it makes it more difficult for them to, um, to create a space where people are just thinking about what they want to think about without having to write impact statements and demonstrate some sort of commercial value. I think that's something that perhaps we, we do need to push against a bit. I think universities shouldn't lose sight of it. But I, I would just summarize by saying that, that universities are about diversity. That's their whole purpose, to create diversity of human thought and people. So they should be trying to do that all the time. Completely agree with that. I mean, I also think that, well, it's impossible for me not to be wrapped up of it, in it because of my identity. <laughs> but also, <clears throat> I guess I, on that note of the fact that university is supposed to provide diversity of human thought, I think being marginalized in that space you notice the glaring gaps in in the spaces like not just the lack of seeing people that look like you although that hurts too but also the lack of 
um, <clears throat> when you're studying and people don't think that anyone black or brown has contributed anything to the canon and you notice that and then you sort of think well, what are they missing I just think that by not having us there it's a dis like the university's doing a huge disservice to themselves and <clears throat> there are certainly loads of spaces like my friend is running the free black uni which is a space that promises to be like an alternative edu a decolonized education space you know so we can do things separate to the university i don't think it's a be all and end all and i don't think that we should necessarily put all of our hopes in decolonizing a space that wasn't built for us rather than building our own i think it's like a multi-pronged thing I don't think I've even tried. I think naturally it's become a focus of mine, uh, like mm. creatively to to hone in on stories that are um, very difficult to, like people who are in between two things. So most often that's between two cultures, um, like Daisy and I. Um, it can be a number of things though. And I think those people are often in the margins, they're marginalized individuals or communities. Um, so I think it's important because it gives people more, I guess, compassion, um, more just of an understanding of where other people are coming from. I think for me, having grown up between two very different cultures, I grew up in the countryside, but I'm Arab and they're very opposing things. Um, I think it's given me like a, a skill in that I can understand where certain people come from, even if I don't agree with them. So I will mm. always be ready to hear someone's opinion even if I vehemently disagree with it I'm always ready to just like take their argument and listen to it and sit with it rather than just say like I, I disagree with you I don't want to listen to it because it's very hard to to not empathize with someone when you do come from a background that's so um conflicted with one another mm -hmm. if that makes sense <laughs> such a good point and I think we need more of we need that in the world we need more of that in the world because especially mm. as we're facing a climate crisis and as we're coming mm. out of lockdown all the big big things the challenges that we're facing collaboratively we have to make sure that we can we can have grown-up conversations and listen to mm. each other and understand where the people are coming from and all of that stuff so the work that I do and you know in in, in, in Edinburgh and in Scotland um, and the UK with my UK role is is exactly that. You know, if we are reshaping our streets, we have to make sure that right from the you know the communities who live there and work there and visit, they have to have a role in a say in shaping what happens to their street or the neighbourhood. Um, mm. And policies, politicians who make the policies, we they have to represent the the mm. you know the diversity of the communities that that they're making policies for and whether it's gender or whether it's you know eth ethnicity or race or you know the whole equality and equity of what we're trying to achieve cannot happen if we don't have those conversations really like you were saying and you know mm. and it's such a good point that maybe that's why you and I are doing what we do because we have that understanding of two different cultures I've never thought of it that way but it's a really really good point um, it's, yeah. because it brings it gives you empathy I suppose yeah I think it, um, I, I'm i doing this um, magazine right now which is about uh, second generation immigrants and 
one of the writers, um, one of her like finishing sentences was that we should start seeing our um, kind of marginal place in society as less of a weakness and more as a power, as a superpower. I think it's super empowering. Um, and I think it's helped me massively. Um, and I think that also like Renny Edo Lodge in her book, um, Why I No Longer Talk to White People About Race, she says that mm-hmm. the fastest growing uh, demographic of children are uh, mixed race children. Yeah, so, I mean, no, we're not going to have this world where someone's black or white or this or that. It's it's so mixed and it's so varied. And we yeah, we need to start looking at those stories and listening to them because they're going to soon be the norm it's i mean absolutely my kids you know they're mixed race obviously and my Mm. son is very much like his like his dad like my husband he's he's a he's white he looks like Mm. a white boy and my Mm. little girl looks like me she looks very indian so they you know they look Mm. similar but they all four of us have very different skin tones and Mm. it's been quite interesting during you know we talk about (laughs) race here and we talk about what happens in America and the conversations happening across the world and obviously age appropriate. But um, mm-hmm. and during the Black Lives Matter protest, which, you know, we've we've been talking about that at home. It was interesting watching them react to that. And I, I overheard them both. They were in the bath and they were discussing what color their skin was. And <laughs> they were saying, um, oh, we're not we're not white, we're not brown, we are golden. And I just <laughs> thought, how beautiful is that? And how, you know, yeah. how beautiful it is that they, that's what they think. But also yeah. how sad that as a nine and a six-year-old, that's, you know, they have to think about skin color, talk about skin color. So, mm. yeah, it was, I think we're living through a very interesting time. And, you know, as you say, going, we can see already not such a distant future that, you know, people are going to look very, very different mm. to what things are like now. So, yeah, it's good to see yeah. kids who've got that sense of self I think for me, because I, I'm, I'm Nigerian and I was born and raised in Edinburgh in Scotland and it was a very white, and still is, yeah, a very white environment. And I spent a lot of kind of my even later teens and time at university really struggling to articulate my feelings and my experience and trying to situate myself and my world and these cultures and get to know myself which I think is what you do at that age regardless and so it just kind of all made sense and part of it part of my work as well is just finding friends and communities and spaces that you are part of and that give you joy but also an energy and a power and thinking of like the space the world is in right now it kind of in a weird way feels like there's no other option but to like speak out in a way that makes sense to me because people do that differently yeah for sure what about you yes thinking about the roles that you have and and giving people those those spaces to be heard why is that important i think that in in the spaces there's so many ways in which i am immensely privileged and i have a platform which amplifies my voice there's many ways that i am not um privileged and and able to have a platform and for those that have access to spaces such as 
you know, for example, I have access to men's spaces. Um, I feel like it's important to kind of bridge the gap of communication, of, of empathy, of solidarity. Like the question, why does it matter is it's like the top of the, of the branch of the tree and the tree has deep roots underneath it. Kind of like just acknowledging that oppression and power. Yeah, <laughs> that's why it matters. It's so, it's very weird to think about um, my identity, I guess, because growing up in Singapore, you know, I was never like Singaporean, but I, I did go to Thailand a lot more than I went to Finland. And that was up until age 12. So I've always like kind of identified with that side of my identity a little more. Um, and then, you know, I moved to Finland and it, I don't know, it's just a weird thing. And then I realized how much I didn't really like fit in to the, um, like culturally, I mean, and it was just like a weird thing to realize. Um, Were you happy there though? Um, not for the first few years, no. no, but eventually, you know, when I kind of, I think that's just kind of part of being a teenager. Cause you know, the years where it was harder for me, I was like 12 to 15. And I think those years are generally pretty hard for people growing up. It's just like, you're, you're like <laughs> grasping onto anything to like call your identity, like a part of your identity. You don't really know what you are, what you're doing. I am where I am right now with my identity. And that's, you know. My dad is Finnish, my mom is Thai, and, you know, I just am what I am. I have elements of those two cultures in me, and that's, you know, that's fine. You know, the, the point that you said, especially about people, that home's about people and not, like, physical places necessarily. I think, you know, the older I get, the more I will kind of lean into that. And I'm sure because I, like, am spending my university years in Edinburgh, it's kind of like the first few years that I feel, like, kind of truly independent. Um, You know, like, I, you know, I've moved out, obviously, and it's, like, it's... Um, I think that in some way or another, I will probably come to think of Edinburgh as like a home of sorts. Um, yeah, it's nice to know you can be happy in different places. Exactly. I always said that about my year abroad in Miami, that it just proved to me that you can go somewhere really far away on your own and be happy. And that's such a defining achievement in your life, especially when you do it when you're young. You know, I was 19 and it's something I'll always look back on and be so glad I did. It's a tale of this this young boy who's incredibly mischievous, much more mischievous than I ever was, I swear. Um, and um, the trouble he gets into in these sort of domestic situations with his, uh, you know, boring parents who want to, you know, instill order and sense into him. And he's just out there daydreaming constantly, getting caught up in these fantastical imaginary adventures alongside um, his tiger friend Hobbes um, so in his mind Hobbes is a real tiger but an anthropomorphic tiger who speaks and is actually very philosophical and quite witty and dry and all that um, and uh, it's really just about the sometimes quite mundane adventures that they have and how they transform that mundanity into something special which is something that I think I, I like to do when I was a child, and I still do, um, but I also kind of had to, um, to a certain extent, um, as hinted previously by the idea that, you know, I'm very sort of, I, I call it porous. Um, I get a tremendous amount from what's in my environment, um, and that could be good or bad. If I'm in an environment which I feel is stifling, oppressive, 
boring, um, then I feel mired in that. If I'm in an environment which is stimulating, interesting, dynamic, then I get a charge off of that. It's a big part of the reason why I moved to Edinburgh. How I relate to that now, um, and this speaks to my experience in Scotland since I arrived, but particularly over the last you know, nearly two years now, um, is for various reasons, again, largely out of necessity and for mental health, trying to find sources of wonder in the same street that I've walked down 500 times. You know, mm. So the particular strip that really resonated with me and the line that I sort of keep in my mind wherever I go um, is Calvin in his backyard digging a hole, which his dad later gets furious about. Like, what are you doing? You're digging up the garden. And Calvin's like, yeah, but it's an adventure. Come on. That's, that's a good reason, right? <laughs> um, and uh, Hobbes comes over to, to Calvin. He's like, you know, why are you digging a hole? He's like, I'm looking for buried treasure. And Hobbes is like, well, what have you got? And he's like, oh, I've got a few dirty rocks. I've got a weird root and some disgusting grubs. And then Hobbes is like, on your first try? And like, that's amazing. <laughs> and Calvin says, there's treasure everywhere. You know? Yeah, like, that's isn't cute. That, isn't that great? Yeah. If we could all just carry a little bit around, you know, of that yeah. around with us, wouldn't yeah. we all just be a little bit happier? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Caroline, how about um, you? How do you? How do you interact with the imposter yeah, syndrome i think a lot of the interaction has been negative thus far so we're trying to get into a positive interaction with it i think it's also mm-hmm. um very common for someone who's just finished their degree from what i understand from the people i've spoken to you know it's, it's a really big part, transition in your life and so i think it's inevitable if you're not 100 percent sure what you want to do that you you've, you're sort of plagued with it right and i think yeah it's it's something that I also find important because it, it, it can act as a counterbalance. You know, it can be like an accountability check that um, everyone is an imposter to everything because not everyone, no one's amazing and perfect at anything. Right. So yeah. I think it's human to have it. We must have it. We must have it to innovate and um, to, to strive for change and be better. Uh, but I think it's just mm-hmm. balancing it with, you know, reality as well and knowing that okay you know I I can't have this expectation of myself um, because it's Mm -hmm. gonna it's crippling uh, and and it's gonna hurt me so much more and then you know there the cycle keeps going and going and that is the quintessential snowball and I remember that Mm -hmm. I really had that in second year and that thinking if you really feed into it and you allow it to happen you're just gonna start tumbling down you know because it's like well I didn't Mm -hmm. do that well I could have done that better and wow, like I'm really viewing myself this way now and it goes and it goes and it goes. And it's so much wasted energy. Yeah. I think that's my biggest thing. I have to think of it that way. It's just wasted energy where um, as much as I don't think I could do X, Y, Z, I know I can do A, B, C and that needs to count for mm-hmm. something. And hopefully at some point that will take me to X, Y, Z or whatever that next step is going to be. Because I think a lot of the time the imposter syndrome is is experienced by people who are really, really ambitious and who care so, so yeah. much. And I remember there was a lecture that we had and he said, don't be paralyzed by ambition. And I thought that was such a wonderful thought that I always, always keep with me because I need to write that. Yeah, down. because There's so many things you know, that are coming out of here today. I just yeah. always think about it because it's true. I get so excited about something and I'm so passionate about it or whatever. And that starts paralyzing me. And then that imposter syndrome really starts to come in and something that began as this amazing opportunity that I want to share with everyone has just turned into this horrifically 
you know, nerve-wracking experience that I'm terrified about even just starting because, you know, what if it doesn't materialize? So where is home for you? Um, where is home for me? That's a really tough question because I don't know if I have a home. It sounds really sad. Um, but I don't know if I can name one place home in a sense of like, so when I, in 2020, I was, like I mentioned, doing fieldwork in Myanmar, which is where I'm from. I was back among my community and like prior to going there, I was super excited about doing field work among my own people because I was like I've grown up in Britain I don't know the language as well as I want to I don't know the culture as well as I want to but eight months of field work will set me straight and it'll be nice to kind of contact just connect with people in my culture again and I got there and I realized oh no I'm very British these people can't keep to time at all and I <laughs> need a schedule um so <laughs> so just like things like that um on a kind of jokey level but on a more serious level it was also kind of like oh I didn't find the sense of belonging and returning home that I thought I would find and that was quite difficult for me to deal with the brief kind of three months I was there I kind of got slowly a slow sense of realization that like oh I had all these fantasies of being back home but home doesn't recognize who I am because I've become Mm. too westernized or there are elements of this culture that I don't find comfortable so you know crap what do I do and then that was kind of like a big kind of catalyst for all these big questions I had about like who I am and where I belong and what my identity is having grown up in Britain but also looking physically different from most Scottish people and all that kind of stuff like that kind of was a whole journey that I started in 2020 and still am on right now um so yeah the question of home is a big one I don't I don't know where home is I don't I think home is where you feel comfortable to be yourself um Mm. which sounds very cliche um but I think in my case it's certainly true because you know there's elements of British society where I feel very uncomfortable and I feel very aware that I am an an other and there's elements Mm. of my own ethnicity and my own culture where I'm like yep I also feel out of place here I think it's where you can feel comfortable being a hundred percent yourself and for me thankfully that's in my partner and the kind of the life that we're building together so that's nice um but yeah I don't I don't have a physical location for home I don't think I think for me it's just like that sense of like yeah this is who I am and I don't need to hide any element of it what about you Olivia yeah I would I would agree with that that's why I wanted you to answer first because I didn't want (laughs) (laughs) no nowhere is home um so my parents have actually always lived I've always lived in the same house at home home like so my Mm. my it should be my house and it's not not home mm-hmm. but it doesn't fit right anymore because you kind of and I know you talked about kind of putting different hats on when you're in different place but I do feel like I regress oh yeah when definitely. I go home home so that doesn't yeah. feel like right and I've got a really bad habit and my mum gets very annoyed of I will be staying in a hotel for like two days and I'll start referring to it as home so I get very comfortable very quickly like, like I'm going home now and she's like no you're not and I was like oh I just went back to my hotel and she's like really Olivia that is not your home (laughs) so obviously adapt very quickly um so and then like you're saying my dad's from the Dominica which is an island in the Caribbean and I've been there a handful of times and my middle name is is my great granny who's who was one of the reasons we went back home home for our 100th birthday and I fall into conversation and I 
call Dominica home sometimes, which is crazy because mm. I I've no right in a lot of sense to call that home in 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 a physical sense. But I think because you're I'm asked that question not so much anymore. She says maybe I'm just hanging out with slightly more aware people of oh, but where are you really from? So I think that's you know mm. that has played into my and so now I sometimes refer to Dominica's home, which doesn't make any sense. I settle into places very quickly and I have like my my stuff. So I will make my bedroom my home. I make my space mine. May that be a hotel room for <laughs> two nights. <laughs> and usually when you ask that question, people like give you a specific place. Oh, it's because of where I grew up. And I, and I think it's kind of what I relate to as well. I think as I'm growing up, I'm not always going to be like, oh yeah, it's that place, that is home. I feel like, you know, as you get comfortable with yourself, just kind of just to go back to what we were talking about earlier, when you get that comfort in yourself, home becomes something that's within you mm-hmm. and the people around you, like your chosen family as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really, really cool. And that's really, really awesome. There's hope, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Season 6 is coming very soon, so subscribe now and you won't miss a thing. I can't wait for you to hear this year's collection of voices and stories from throughout the Edinburgh University community. enjoyed meeting members of our University of Edinburgh community. To connect with more, join Platform One, our online meeting place for students, alumni and staff of the university. To find out more, search Platform One Edinburgh.